1: hey guys i'm monica crowley and this is the monica crowley podcast thanks so much for joining me here on this monday as we kick off a brand new week here on the show this is your go-to for hot liberty A safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. On social media, on Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore... And on Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I'm at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. So keep sending those emails. I love hearing from you guys. All right. Coming up on the balance of the week on the show uh, on Wednesday, we're going to be all over tomorrow night's State of the Disunion address Uh, President Biden, what a joke, um, is going to speak to the nation tomorrow night. It's all going to be a blizzard of lies. So on Wednesday on this show, we're going to take it all apart. An America First member of Congress is going to join us, and he's going to be on the floor tomorrow night for this speech. So he will give us a full rundown of what actually is going to happen tomorrow night. So that will be on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we're going to be joined by former Secretary of State, former CIA Director Mike Pompeo. He's been on this show before, now he's got a brand new memoir out. So we're going to talk to him about a whole range of things, including big threats to this country, both internal and external. And we'll also talk to him about the 2024 presidential race, because he is running and he's going to have to face down both his old boss, Donald J. Trump, and the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. The general consensus is DeSantis is running. So Pompeo is going to be in that crowd among others. And we'll talk to him about that. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. The Crowley-Pompeo talk He's been on the show before. He was phenomenal. We're going to talk to him about a bunch of stuff, okay? So you're not going to want to miss a second of the Monica Crowley podcast this week or ever. Of all of the countless lies, hoaxes, conspiracies, and frauds designed and executed by the regime, the deep state, over the past couple of years to undermine and ultimately destroy Donald Trump and to stop the broader America First movement. The two most consequential, in my mind, are the Russia hoax, which we will deal with more fully in an upcoming show, and January 6, 2021, both the actual riot at the Capitol, which we now know was not an insurrection, that was always a farce, but a fed-surrection. Designed, instigated, and executed by the feds to frame President Trump and his supporters in order to discredit and destroy them for good. And the January 6th committee, which was, of course, not an honest, credible investigation, but it was the cover up for the feds' crimes. Every day brings more facts, more information, more truth about what actually happened that day, the setup the cover-up, and the desperate reason the regime carried it all out. Discovering and knowing the truth is absolutely critical for accountability and justice, if we're ever going to see that. I'm thrilled to have with us today a fierce and fearless warrior for truth and justice, which is really rare in America today. Darren Beatty is the founder and editor of the phenomenal investigative news site, revolver news which you can find at revolver.news okay it's not a dot com it's not a dot org it's a dot news revolver.news if you're not already checking it out you're missing out Okay, Revolver has replaced the Drudge Report as the go-to news aggregator site for us, and they also do great investigative work too. Revolver deserves all of our support. You know how we talk about changing the culture and changing the news environment? Well, the only way we do that is by supporting those who are on our team, who have gone out there, taken a big risk, and are doing phenomenal work. Revolver deserves our support, so please go check it out. You're going to be addicted to it really fast, I promise. Darren is also a former speechwriter and policy aide to President Trump, and he's now written the foreword to the January 6th report of the Select Committee Monica, what's that about? Oh, we're going to tell you about what that's about. So we know that the select committee actually was the cover-up to the Fed's crimes, and they put out this ridiculous pack of lies known as the January 6th report. Darren has taken it upon himself – to write the foreword to the report which they have published and it's just it's so clever and important the foreword provides the facts the truth and the necessary context to the committee's blizzard of lies and obfuscation this is available everywhere you get your books and he joins me now darren welcome
2: so happy to be here thank you so much for that generous intro
1: well, it's such a pleasure to have you here. I'm a big fan of your work and what you've built at Revolver. And that's why everybody should be checking it out multiple times a day. Just live on the revolver.news uh, website. So Darren, there's a lot to cover with you today. I want to do a big excavation with you on January 6, because you have written this forward, which is really the actual honest report about January 6, and what we know so far because the facts are coming at us every day. But before we do that, I want to ask you about the weaponization of our own government against us, because I have said, despite all of the threats that are arrayed against us from the CCP to Iran and so on, that that is the most significant and existential threat That we face. So in your view, because you do this every day, how deep does the corruption and the weaponization go in our government and how dangerous is it?
2: Well, that's a fantastic question, Monica, because really, if there is one theme running throughout all of Revolver's coverage, you know, we're best known for January 6th, but we've done Really extensive deep dives on the censorship issue, where that's coming from, the government involvement in that. Um, We've done deep dives in relation to uh, COVID, the disinformation industry, all sorts of things. And if there's a single theme running throughout our reporting that sort of generalizes into what is revolver.news really doing? what? What? What's the purpose of it? And I think you could say the purpose of it is to reorient and update patriotic Americans, maybe conservative-leaning um, Americans, to the new reality, very dangerous reality, that the number one threat to our freedom, our liberty, our security, and our flourishing is actually the national security apparatus itself. And the reason that that's such an important and in some ways difficult exercise has to do, I think, with certain elements of political psychology, not to get too academic about it, but again, these are generalizations, but I think there's some real truth to it, which is that conservatives, generally speaking, have a... Psychological disposition such that they want to venerate just and well functioning institutions of authority. Conversely, and again, I'm being extremely charitable, probably unrealistically charitable, but just for the sake of the contrast, people on the left, at their best at least, are animated by something different. They want to critique unjust institutions of authority. So people on the left want to critique unjust institutions of authority. People on the right want to venerate just and well-functioning institutions of authority. And the premier examples of these institutions of authority that we're disposed to venerate have to do with those tasked with protecting our national security, right? It's it's natural. We want to Mm -hmm. support these institutions. So it's It's a it's a different and more difficult task in certain ways to update people with the more conservative disposition to the reality that, you know, not only are these national security institutions basically doing very little to protect what we would ordinarily think to be our national security, but they are actively hostile to the freedom, flourishing, and well-being of the ordinary American citizen. And that's a really, really tough pill to swallow, but the fact remains, the national security state remains the chief bottleneck to political progress. And as I've said many, many times, unless and until we bring that apparatus to heal, our politics will remain mostly fake and performative.
1: You know, it's such an important point, and you just stated it so brilliantly and powerfully, Darren. And I want to share a couple of points with you, um, both from President Nixon, who I started my career working with, former President Nixon, not when he was president, Mm -hmm. was not born then, (laughs) um, but during the last years of his life. And, you know, when we talked about bias in the press, nixon said to me he said you know i've thought a lot about this and remember this is like the mid 1990s so this is sort of this is before fox news before social media where we have a number of different outlets at the time it was like you know three major news networks and that's and a couple of newspapers around the country and that's where you got your news and it was so biased but now certainly in the trump era that bias has been weaponized as well. And it's, it's at a whole other level of activism and intensity. But at the time, President Nixon said, you know, I've given a lot of thought over the course of my career, Monica, about why the the press is, is so left and biased and why it attracts leftists. And he said, look, I've come to the conclusion And I think this applies to government as well. So the national security state, what you just laid out, Darren, I think it applies to this, um, to the government as well. And he said, it's because smart conservatives go into business to make money and smart liberals or leftists go into journalism. And I would extend that to the national security state and government writ large to change the country and change the world. They're true believers. They're they're Marxist revolutionaries in many cases, so I think that that formulation does apply as sort of the reason why the government has been so infiltrated with these revolutionaries. And I also just want to share with you and get your reaction to, um, you know, he was very Nixon was very close to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Democrat senator from New York, middle of the road, very responsible and a real intellectual, a deep thinker about America's social ills. And he said to Richard Nixon, look, my view is because of human nature and the inclination to corruption, my view is that the executive branch needs massive reform every generation, every 20 to 25 years, the entire executive branch needs to be uprooted, root and branch and rebuilt. Because otherwise, you're going to have this kind of corruption burrowed in very deep, and it will become deeply entrenched, and then it'll be impossible to change. So we had that reform after World War II, Darren, and then we had it again um, well, I guess we were due by the time Nixon, we were actually past due by the time Nixon became president in 1968. That would have been about 28 years, 20, 25 years after the end of World War II when we remade the National Security Apparatus, created the National Security Council, etc. after the war. Here we are. That has not been done since the end of World War II. So we're looking at like 80 years down the road where... We've had very deep corruption entrenched. And without that kind of massive uprooting of literally the entire executive branch from the DOJ, FBI, IRS, you name it, every direction, we're going to continue going down this
2: road. Your response? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Nixon because, um, you know, there was something that occurred in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal, which, you know, that's a whole separate discussion. Maybe we should do a whole separate thing on this, because a lot of people don't know, but I uh, I worked for Robert Bork for several years out of college, and one of the projects that we did was about those Watergate years, in which he was Solicitor General and um, had a very interesting perspective on it, and basically, I mean, you know this better than anyone, but the whole Watergate thing is not what it was presented to be in the public's imagination. And, you know, there's a, there's a deep rabbit hole about that, but that notwithstanding the public's imagination about Watergate was, this was a scandal involving abuses uh, on the part of a, a Republican uh, president. And then there was, you know, the Vietnam war that a lot of people were, protesting on the left and so forth. And so this church committee, which I've been calling for a sort of church style committee, which exists in some form in the house now, we can talk about that. But the inspiration is this church committee from the 70s that was really really inhabited a different era in our country with very different political um, and institutional dynamics. So for one, this church committee, for people who don't know, the short version is is a very, very broad investigative committee in the Senate, bipartisan, which, you know, there are a lot of things that they didn't touch, but they did expose a lot of um, abuses on the part of the CIA and other um, intelligence bureaucracies that have become sort of the lore of you know, people who like to get into conspiracy stuff, but in this case, it's actually true, like the MKUltra, COINTELPRO, all of that came out within the environment of, of the church committee. And so we've been thinking, how how do we replicate those results? And I think it's very difficult because, again, if you'll afford a, a simplification here to make a point, back in Nixon's day, um, there was something of a divided power within the regime more broadly in the sense that you know you can there was still a lot of bad stuff going on within the national security state but it was kind of inflected t- toward the cold war and in some sense you could say that the national security bureaucracy was inflected a bit to the right it was in some sense conservative whereas the institutions like The uh, academy and the media were left wing, and so you had some division of power between you know the meaningful institutions. We had the national security state sort of on one side, and the academy and the media on the other side, and the fact that there was this division of power genuine division of power. Enabled the Church Committee to have the political capital that it needed to actually uncover stuff. You know, it was a bipartisan committee. Frank Church was a Democrat. Um, Barry Goldwater was on the was on the committee. Um, they had you know a, a open door uh, access to the Oval Office, where you know then President Gerald Ford was accommodating to a degree that is really inconceivable uh, in in today's you know, version of it. The relevant point people at the bureaucracies that the church committee was investigating, they were all uh, cooperative to a degree that's unimaginable. And the reason for that is that the media was supporting those efforts because It was basically, and again, a generalization was basically investigating the right inflected national security states' abuses against left inflected movements like the Vietnam War protest movement and so forth. And so, because of this divided power environment, they were actually able to get somewhere. Well, something major has happened since the 1970s in which the church committee operated, and that is. That we no longer have a divided regime. Every single meaningful institution in the United States is animated on one side politically, and that includes the National Security Institution. So the lack of a genuine division of power across the regime makes it much more difficult to successfully conduct something like the Church Committee because the media is not going to be on the side of the House Biden or whoever is president next um unless it's unless it's Trump is is not going to give a favorable hearing or even give the time of day not that Biden knows the time of day most of the time but even if he knew it he wouldn't give it to them much less the people who run these bureaucracies that you know the Jim Jordan committee would be investigating so it's it's just a very it's a very different dynamic across the institutions and i think a lot of people on the right it's it's very difficult again you know there's there's so much cope and wishful thinking that people that people want to buy people are desperate for cope and wishful thinking because the sober reality on the ground is the power distribution is so profoundly asymmetrical to the point that every single meaningful institution in the country is basically on the side of the left or this weird combination of wokeness with government power and, and, and in business power too, you know, before, again, that's another difference. If you'll just pardon an addendum here, Nixon was talking about, oh, the business people are on the right. That's another thing that's changed. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this kind of antiquated idea from, you know, the Reagan era, or, you know, even back to the Nixon era, oh, the private sector, or a bunch of right wing businessmen. So, you know, again, again, then you had the military that was right inflected, and you had corporate America that was right inflected, and corporate America has become totally left wing, at least at the levels that actually matter. So yeah, the terrain in which we have to operate is substantially different from from the terrain uh of the post Nixon era in which there was something like the church committee that to some degree was successful in uncovering abuses by the national security state. And to some degree was successful in um, catalyzing some kind of reform. Some would say would reform. some say they just rearranged, uh, rearranged things and never stopped, but still there was, a necessity for some kind of public accommodation and response uh, to these abuses that were uncovered. And the pressures that were necessary for that, the preconditions for those pressures, it's very hard to see where they come from today given the current dynamic.
1: Such an important point because it gets, Darren, to the point of implementation. So, even if we did have a very effective committee along the lines of the church committee, it's the implementation part. Who is going right. to implement it? Right. Because this is a huge, heavy lift. Like I said, everything's exactly. got to be ripped down, root and branch.
2: And, Monica, there's another thing here. And, you know, this is, you know, we're, we're getting into kind of more uh, theoretical discussion, which is great. But there's one more point on that who is going to do the dismantling? I mean, that's a real question. So, you know, in order to dismantle the national security, say, well, who's going to dismantle? Presumably, there's this critical mass of competent, brave people who know how to navigate the institutions and could do something like that with, you know, in in the face of the coordinated opposition of every single powerful institution in the country, uh, including the legal institutions and, and the media. So who are these people that are going to conduct that? And it's even more difficult to imagine when you think of the kind of, and I hate to use this term, but I'll use it. It's 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 jarring to some, but I think it's an appropriate analogy, the kind of battered wife syndrome that the right finds itself in. And what do I mean by that? I mean, they have a battered wife relationship with the national security apparatus, because here you have the weaponized national security state casting American conservatives as domestic terrorists, treating them effectively as ISIS, throwing people in solitary confinement for attending a Trump rally effectively, let alone, you know, oh, you object to, you know, transsexuals you know, doing stuff at your kid's school. The FBI is involved in that now, too. So you have this relation where the people on the right are inherently suspect as domestic terrorists, and they're stomped upon and spat upon and dispossessed accordingly. And yet the next day, the national security state and its representatives say, hey, conservative Steve from, you know, the South, (laughs) conservative Steve from the South, with a tradition, multi-generation tradition of military service. I know we just toppled all your statues. I know we just renamed the military base where, you know, where your son is stationed. I know we just you know, called everyone in your family racist, white supremacists. And I know that, you know, your cousin who attended the Trump rally is wallowing in solitary confinement. But you know, we're having problem with those freedom-hating chai comms in China. And we're going to need you to suit up and risk your life to go defend Taiwan. Mm-hmm. That's the relationship that the national security state now has with conservatives that the same conservatives that the government is ripping away your rights locking you up over some dubious notion of a of a virus doing all sorts of things to you some things that couldn't even be imagined at Guantanamo bay And these are the people, and the national security state thinks that the conservatives are so unsophisticated and such cheap dates that the next day they can go and tell you, hey, mister, we're going to let you out of solitary confinement so you can put on a uniform and go fight China. I wonder how sustainable that is, because a lot of people on the right, a lot of politicians on the right are part of this game. A lot of people, a lot of politicians will point fingers at, you know, the abuse of the Uyghurs on the part of the Chinese communist government, and they won't talk about the January 6 prisoners rotting away in prison in our own country. It's a useful deflection for them. And I wonder how long this is sustainable for the national security apparatus to have a hostile relationship to the very types of citizens that they re- expect to be, quote unquote, patriotic and go and suit up and, 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 and fight in some faraway place. So that the crooks who control this country can maintain their predominant share of the geopolitical loot.
1: Yeah. And the answer is it's not sustainable. We, we don't have an end point, but I think we're approaching it pretty fast. Darren, please hang tight. A lot more ahead. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, com. We're back with Darren Beattie of Revolver News everything that you describe, this is the logical endpoint of the long march by the Marxists, which began in the 1930s as a KGB operation, continues through this day um, with this very dark alliance between the ccp the global marxist revolutionaries the transnational organizations like the wef and the who um, and and the islamists i mean they're all working together for the same goal which is the undermining and ultimate destruction of the united states and it's been going on for decades from the inside they've been very successful with their long term project and you know when we talk about implementing reforms look, um, you know, because of that conversation with Daniel Patrick Moynihan in Nixon's second term, he was going to do exactly this. He said, we're overdue for a massive reform of the executive branch, national security state, DOJ, FBI, et cetera. I'm going to do it in a second term. And of course they took him out, just like President Trump had begun to do that as well as a disruptor. And they had to undermine and try to destroy him as well. And that project continues to this day. So that these are very big, dark forces, and they're in every direction. You're exactly right. And there is very little countervailing pressure to keep things honest and fair in government. Or um, those who want to make those changes are intimidated, threatened into silence, or like Donald Trump. And, and those of us who have always supported him, you know, destroyed, targeted, and have, our, have had our lives just absolutely uprooted and destroyed. Once corruption takes root, it's very difficult to dislodge. And nobody has an incentive to uproot it because everybody is benefiting from it in some way. And they're relying on us to do the dirty work and fight their wars and empower and enrich the military industrial complex and line their pockets, etc. But you're exactly right. We are we're at a tipping point in this country in a lot of different ways, and it's not sustainable. So let's talk about, I want to switch into January 6th, because now that we've set the table with the depth of corruption and rot in all of our institutions and the weaponization of our own government against us, how did we get here? This brings us to January 6, 2021. So Darren, they... Rigged the election in 2020 to deny it to President Trump because he was a disruptor and threatening that he was an existential threat to their entire corrupt status quo. After the election, the nation is on a knife's edge because of the election, the pandemic, BLM, and Antifa burning down the country, and the rest of it in 2020. So right after the election, please take it from there and start to walk us through where we ended up on January 6th.
2: Well, yes, that is that's a big story. Um, so where do we begin? You know, the the media, the Biden regime, and so forth have been blowing this up to be an insurrection. An insurrection, in fact. Biden said that comparisons to nine eleven don't go far enough. So he took it a step further and said, um, it's January six is worse than the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this gives us an idea of how much they're trying to push this as this big kind of terror disastrous event and again the reason they're doing this gets back to what we're talking about is that the false narrative of January six is being used to facilitate this weaponization of the national security state. This was was the 9-11 of the MAGA terrorists. And just as the Department of Homeland Security was instituted in the aftermath of 9-11 to fight Islamic terror, now the Department of Homeland Security is being completely repurposed. As their stated position is that, quote unquote, white supremacy is now the number one national security threat facing America. So this narrative, this January 6th, as the like the 9-11, where the MAGA people are, are the terrorists, is very important to the transformation that the regime is trying to push through. Incidentally, the January 6th committee, chaired by Benny Thompson, one interesting thing about Benny Thompson is he's a seven-time chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. He is more than any other congressman the Department of Homeland Security's stooge within Congress. How interesting that of all the people who could have chaired this committee, it was the DHS's Department of Homeland Security's stooge. That's kind of an interesting point in its own right. But I say this is not an insurrection. It's what I call a fedsurrection. And what I mean by that is not that everybody who attended was a card-carrying member of the FBI. What I mean is that had it not been for the critical behavior and participation of a handful of key actors, the preconditions would not have been there that allowed for this rally to turn into a riot. Furthermore, of the critical actors that I've identified who played a decisive role in allowing the rally to become a riot, none of them have been arrested. And in some cases, the most egregious ones have not even been identified. So the most famous of these people that I think revolver.news helped to make Pretty famous for for a Fed provocateur, for a seeming Fed provocateur, he's 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 quite the household name, and that's Ray Epps. But right. there are other people. I mentioned um, that really people were shocked. I went on the Glenn Beck program and mentioned this guy called Scaffold Commander. Unlike Ray Epps, this Scaffold Commander hasn't even been identified. We don't know even know who this guy is. And yet, his behavior was just as egregious and just as decisive to that day as Ray Epps's. I've, you know, unfortunately, not yet, I'm building up to this point, but Revolver.News does not have, you know, multi, multi million dollar budget like, like some organizations, let alone the federal government. But I pulled out all the stops I could to identify this guy. I couldn't do it. I used facial recognition. I'd use everything. Couldn't even find out who this guy is. And the thing is, the government isn't even interested. Because unlike Ray Epps, who at least made it to the first 20 of the FBI's most wanted list in relation January 6, until until Revolver, we published our first piece. Uh, suggesting that there was extensive federal involvement in January 6th, that first piece didn't even mention Ray Epps, by the way. We just put out the thesis analyzing charging documents of the Oath Keepers that, hey, things look weird. Uh, There's, you know, it looks like there's Fed involvement here. Literally the next day, and we interpolated this using the Wayback Machine, literally the next day, the FBI scrubs Ray Epps from its most wanted list after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in um, the story of Epps, it's like the New York Times had a feature on January 6th called Day of Rage. And of all the footage that they um, muddled through, they decided quite understandably that the Ray Epps footage was the most um, explosive. And so they included the footage of Ray Epps. Who is was the only guy caught on Capitol as early as uh, caught in advance as early as January 5th saying go into the Capitol, go into the Capitol? They use that footage because it's the best footage you could use if you wanted to make the case that the whole NAGA you know, types were planning to go in in advance, they use the footage of ramps but After the revolver piece, after the FBI scrubbed Epps from the most wanted list, New York Times itself took a very different approach and, in fact, wrote a fully dedicated puff piece on Ray Epps, which they didn't ask any questions that you would think they would ask of Ray Epps. And then finally, Adam Kinzinger, the crybaby Kinzinger, who's never met a Trump supporter that he didn't want to see rotting in jail for at least 50 years. We now have the public transcript of the January 6th committee's interrogation of Ray Epps. And what's striking is Adam Kinzinger is more aggressively on the side of Ray Epps than Ray Epps' own lawyer, who is incidentally a nine-year veteran of the FBI Phoenix field office. And in fact, time after time, Kinzinger bends over backwards to offer the most implausibly charitable interpretations of one inconsistency after another, after another, one lie after another. And in reading between the lines, you could see that the other committee members were kind of shocked. It was like, this is weird. This Epps thing is really weird. We know we have our marching orders that we're supposed, this is supposed to be exculpatory, we're supposed to kind of be on his side, but this is weird, whereas Kinzinger was full on advocate for Ray Epps for whatever reason. Well, Um, I think, I think
1: we know (laughs) the reason because, you know, our side has a lot of useful idiots, Um, Darren and Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are, are two of the worst, but you're exactly right. When you take a look at that transcript, Kinzinger was basically acting as Ray Epps' defense attorney. It was completely shameful. And
2: some of the things were really bizarre, like, you know, just to give people a flavor of... What was going on in this interrogation? So in the the famous clip of Epson the fifth, he's saying, we need to go into the Capitol, into the Capitol. He didn't just say that. He prefaced both of his exhortations in this very methodical rehearsed fashion, saying, I'm probably going to go to jail for this, but tomorrow we need to go into the Capitol. I'm probably going to get arrested for this. But tomorrow, and so Fast forward to the interrogation with the committee, they ask him, how in the world did you get the idea to go in the Capitol in the first place? Because remember, now all we think about is the Capitol, nobody was thinking about the Capitol on January 6th. Trump's speech was not at the Capitol, it was over 20 minutes away by foot, had nothing to do with the Capitol. So why was Epps on January 5th Think So fixated on the Capitol and telling people to go in, where did you get this idea, Mr. Epps? He just, no answer, really. I don't know. It was just out there. <laughs> and, 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 and and furthermore, he said, I thought it would be legal. I thought the Capitol would be open. They just let us in, which is interesting because there is footage of Capitol Police opening the doors for people, but it wasn't legal and it wasn't the way that he described. But it's interesting that he thought, oh, they're just going to open the door but he said, I thought it would be legal, which, of course, directly contradicts the footage that depicts him saying, I'm probably going to get arrested for this. I'm probably yeah. going to get to jail for this. Well, if you thought it was legal, why did you say that? Oh, yeah, know. It, no, exactly it, 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 right. Yeah, but meanwhile,
1: we, we've we had to to this point, we've had dozens of grandmas from Indiana rotting in prison pre-trial, no due process or very little due process, but Ray Epps is wandering around getting puff pieces in the New York Times. So what does that tell you?
2: No, exactly. And, 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 but the answers is just, there's, there's not even an attempt to have it make sense. And he's had a lot of time to think about it. You know, you've had a lot of time to think about, you know, how, you know, at least lie, at least have a semi believable lie, but he didn't even bother with that. He just said, oh, those were a poor choice of words. And there were other occasions, like he said, you know, once I got to that sort of initial breach location with the bike racks, he said, once I got there, I abandoned any notion of going into the Capitol. Now, here's an interesting thing, because it's clear that the January 6th committee people themselves are using Revolver for their own edification, despite calling us conspiracy site, because the second I read that in the transcript, I was thinking, oh, my God, if only someone were informed enough to ask about this specific video clip. And sure enough, to my astonishment and my pleasant surprise, someone from the committee was actually very intelligent and asked, well, Ray Epps, if you're, if you're claiming that you abandoned any idea of going into the Capitol, what about this video clip of you telling a guy right at that spot, when we go in, leave this here, we don't wanna get shot, referring to bear spray. When we go in, being the operative phrase, If you weren't thinking about going into the Capitol or anyone else going to the Capitol, why do you say when you go in as though it was fait accompli, as though it was a given that everyone would go in? His response? Oh, yeah, I don't know about that. And then the biggest whopper of all is, you know, this iconic footage of Ray Epps where he says, we need to go into the Capitol. And then the crowd around him immediately starts chanting, fed, 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 fed. fed." And And the committee asked him about that. And his response was, I don't remember that at all. And in fact, my son was there. He doesn't remember it. I suspect that's doctored footage. And that was edited in after the fact. Mm. That gives you the sense of the delusion here. It's like there's this, you know, there was a pop culture song um, by uh, a reggae artist, Shaggy, called It Wasn't Me. Right, (laughs) right. It was (laughs) basically Ray Epps's it wasn't me like he's literally caught on video everywhere. (laughs) He's caught in one consistency after the other. It wasn't me and you know that was supposed to be good enough for the committee, because the marching orders were clearly we protect him.
1: Yes, and, and the committee was the cover-up for the Fed's crimes here. Okay, Darren, please stand by. we got a lot more straight ahead. But first, guys, why not give yourself the gift of great skin this Valentine's Day with GenuCell? You can take 10 or 15 years off your appearance with GenuCell Skin Care and their most popular package. And right now... Every most popular package is 70% off and includes the next breakthrough in skincare technology. GenuCell's probiotic moisturizer, absolutely free. I use it and I love it. It's so good. And for my listeners, GenuCell is including a beauty box with two luxury gifts with every order from now until Valentine's Day. Go to GenuCell.com slash Monica right now to get your free beauty box with two luxury gifts when you make a purchase. See those fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, sagging jawline, and even bags and puffiness visibly disappear right before your eyes thanks to GenuCell. Plus, with its immediate effects, see results in under 12 hours. Guaranteed, or your money back. So go to GenuCell.com slash Monica right now. And for the first time ever, every order at GenuCell.com from now until Valentine's Day includes a beauty box with two luxury gifts, yours free. So, order now, two weeks only, genucel.com slash Monica. That's G E N U C E L dot com slash Monica. Again, genucel dot com slash Monica. We're coming right back. Okay, we're back with Darren Beatty of Revolver News. So from the November election, which they clearly rigged to deny it to President Trump, they knew January 6th was the ultimate date when the election was going to be certified. The vice president was going to be in there. Trump was calling for, you know, a big rally of support for him and and so on. So they knew all of this was going to take place. Do you believe that this was uh, all set up, that this was a frame up by the DOJ and FBI?
2: That's an interesting question. I mean, I again, I kind of formulate my Fed's direction thesis. I'm saying, had it not been for a handful of key critical actors who took proactive steps, I think this is a useful distinction. There's one, is scandal enough that we know that these militia groups imputed to January 6th were infiltrated up to the very highest levels. And so at the very least, we know that insofar as there was any kind of planning or anything like that, or any indication that there would be something going on in January 6th, which there of course was, that the government knew about this far in advance, and they didn't do anything meaningful to stop it. That alone is a scandal in its own right, that they knew that Something was going on and they did nothing because they allowed it to happen because they wanted it to happen.
1: They wanted That's it to happen. Now, President Trump had yeah. requested the National exactly. Guard and That's, the Capitol Police yeah. and so on, and the, the people who were in charge, Nancy Pelosi mostly, but also Chuck Schumer, that both of those offices shut down those requests for additional security, right. they, correct? They
2: shut down. There's all kinds of stuff. There was this like hippies for Trump van that had stopped the deal on it that was Stopped on January 5th, right outside the Department of Justice, with explosives and guns. And, like, there are so many reasons. Like, just think about it. It doesn't, you know, we don't even need to get so complicated or specific. Just think about it this way it would be weird enough if the U.S. Capitol had ordinary levels of security on January 6th, because again, it was a highly politically charged time. There's a highly politically charged event that was scheduled to take place at the Capitol. And President, you know, President Trump was giving a speech in Washington, D.C. on, you know, something that pertains to the you know, proceeding going on. So it's just a no-brainer. Any high-profile event, you have elevated security, period. But it wasn't only that it was just an ordinary level of security. On January 6th, for quote unquote, whatever reason, the Capitol had uniquely poor security, Mm -hmm. virtually non-existent security. And so you look at that, plus you look at how thoroughly all of these militia groups were infiltrated, came out in the trials that the number two guy at the Oath Keepers was an FBI informant. Their informants all littered throughout the Proud Boys. In fact, even the Proud Boys leader has a history of having been an informant. So, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about these militia type groups. And so they knew in, in advance, but then the scandal is a lot darker than even that, because it's not just that they knew in advance they did nothing to stop it, which, by the way, the National Security State FBI has a long history of that sort of thing. But it's even worse than that because they had people who were likely connected with the federal government who took proactive steps to make it happen. And that's what I mean by fedsurrection, that there are people like Ray Epps, like Scaffold Commander, and like these others who are feds in the general colloquial sense of the term who played a critical role in having this turn into a riot. Now, just getting into the question of how did what is the exact way that this all happened? Was it this was, you know, signed off from the highest levels of the FBI that, you know, I this is speculative territory. I don't exactly think that's the way these things work. Um, Ray Epps, lawyer, whom I mentioned, was a nine year veteran of the FBI. He went on this big tour saying Ray Epps is not a member of the FBI, has never been associated with the FBI, has never been associated with law enforcement. And I noticed he was really clinging on to this term law enforcement for dear life. Why would that be? Well, the Department of Homeland Security, which we mentioned, is not a law enforcement institution. Military intelligence is not a law enforcement institution. Any kind of private contract organization that, you know, is affiliated with those groups would not be a law enforcement institution. And so the lawyers just cling on this idea, Ray is not involved with law enforcement. Then when he was asked, well, is he involved with any government agency? The answer was not to my knowledge, which Mm -hmm. coming from a lawyer, you know, if you were in a position to Issued the same kind of emphatic, explicit denial as he did for law enforcement. He would do that. So either he's lying, or more likely, the way lawyers operate, he's he told Epps, "Look, whatever else you may have been involved in, I don't want to know precisely," so he could give that kind of answer. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't think this was you know signed off from you know from the top down. I think these bureaucracies are too bloated, and they have too many sub factions for things to really work that way. But I definitely think that the senior levels of the FBI know that you know something weird's going on. They know when not to touch it. They they investigated, they interrogated Epps way early on, and. You know, he just, he was giving answers that didn't make any sense and they asked zero follow up questions, for instance, that time the first time the FBI interviewed him. They asked him. So why did you go to Washington DC in the first place he said, Well, I was concerned that someone would plant explosives inside streets. which corresponds pretty closely to the pipe bombs, which are the other smoking gun of the Fed's erection, which were planted on side streets near the Capitol. And yet the Feds don't ask him a follow-up question about the pipe bomb. There are things like this that indicate that all it takes is for somebody to get a call saying, look, the EPP situation is complicated. Don't press it. And they know what that means, and they don't press it. They don't need to know the full story. So the exact arrangement that sustained Epps is an interesting one. It's unclear, but what is clear is that he was an inauthentic actor, and he's being protected by the government and, by extension, the media, precisely because he was an inauthentic actor.
1: Yes, no, you're exactly right. And Ray Epps was clearly a ringleader in all of this. But there are other ringleaders too, like the scaffolding guy that, uh, you know, you're trying desperately to identify, but there were others. And, you know, to your point about where and how conspiracies like this are um, conceived and then executed, we do have a deep state. The deep state is very real and it's full of these shadowy characters who operate in the shadows, guys like Peter Strzok. Peter Strzok is like the poster boy for, for the deep state shadowy characters, but Ray Epps is one as well. And they infiltrated this crowd of grandmas from Indiana, draped in the American flag. And they push these people into this situation. I mean, these people are law abiding. This is, it's like the tea party. Um, which was the first sort of modern manifestation of this America First movement, you know, we'd go out and rally with the Tea Party and then we'd go clean up all of our garbage and left the park cleaner than when we found it, right? And it's the same group of patriotic Americans. So the idea that they just reached for violence as a knee-jerk reaction because of their fury without being instigated and pushed into it by these shadowy characters is just absurd.
2: Yes. You know, it's very dark and I, I mentioned the other smoking gun being the pipe bomb, which is truly an astonishing story when, you know, we've covered this extensively from many angles. You know, one, I say, the RN, there were two pipe bombs discovered, one by the RNC, one by the DNC. And I say, the circumstances under which the RNC pipe bomb were found were independently impossible to believe. The circumstances under which the DNC pipe bombs were not found until they, uh, until like one in the afternoon on the sixth, that's impossible. And yet, both of those things had to happen together. These independently impossible narratives had to happen together in order for the official version of the pipe bomb to work. And furthermore, in light of these, Um, circumstantial anomalies, really unbelievable anomalies. We've done extensive forensic analysis of the surveillance footage that the FBI has released to the public of the pipe bomber. We've shown definitively two things. One, we've shown that the FBI is in possession of and is censoring, withholding footage that would depict the pipe bomber actually planting the pipe bomb. Which again, it would be nice to see definitively that the pipe bomber plants the bomb when and where they say, because this DNC bomb was sitting out there conspicuously right at the foot of a park bench outside the DNC, and it was sitting there for over 17 hours when nobody found it. January 6th was a high foot traffic day, Monica. People were yeah. walking around. Nobody saw it. Revolver.news proved that there's a physical security guard stationed no more than 10 feet away from that pipe bomb. That security guard who harassed a revolver news reporter who was doing research there. That security guard didn't think, didn't see the pipe bomb. Um, no motorists saw the pipe bomb. And then no DNC employees who were sitting at the park bench having a coffee that morning saw the pipe bomb. And as, you know, the the, the cherry on top of it all is that the Secret Service of the United States, which swept the DNC on the 6th, on the morning of the 6th, did not find the pipe bomb. The pipe bomb allegedly had live explosive device on it. I say the Secret Service dogs must have had COVID that day because their sense of smell wasn't working. They They couldn't smell... the the explosives there, which is the easiest thing in the world, what they're trained to do. And and then the question comes, well, why did the Secret Service sweep it? Well, it had been covered up, aggressively covered up for over a year. But now we know that then Vice President-elect Kamala Harris was in the building when the pipe bombs were there. Now, this is a really weird thing. Because remember, the media is trying to blow up January 6th into this terrorist event, this 9-11 of the white supremacist MAGA crowd, right? Why would they forego the easy opportunity to milk this Kamala story? Why did they why why would Kamala cover it up? Because think about it. The first woman of color, she's a woman, and she's a woman of color, and she's a Democrat. And her life came within an inch of being snuffed out by the MAGA mob because she was in the building when the pipe bomb was there. Think of what the media could have done with that story, especially given how desperate they were to make January 6th a terrorist event. What was so important about covering this up that it superseded the political payoff of milking this MAGA terrorist story? Why did they cover it up? Why didn't Kamala go out and say, look, you know, when in all of her public pronouncements about January 6th, think about how powerful that could have been for her to say, my own life was in danger because I was in the building when the pipe bomb was there. But no, she didn't say that. Why didn't they want us to know that? Why didn't they want us to know that the Secret Service swept the area and didn't find the pipe bomb? That's a very interesting question. But then, but when you, Add it all together, you have this pipe bomb sitting out there for 17 hours. No pedestrians saw it, no motorists saw it, the physical security guard stationed no more than 10 feet away from the pipe bomb, they he didn't see it. The Secret Service United States, the most elite protection detail in the world, was on record as having swept the area, didn't see it. And sure enough, the footage that would have shown the pipe bomber planting the pipe bomb at the time that they say they did. The FBI is withholding that for whatever reason, while at the same time, they're saying, we need any and all help from the public. Help us, help us. Right. Well, we've also proved that the FBI tampered with the footage that they released. Mm-hmm. They artificially tampered with it to reduce the frame rate to it. An- unimaginable 1.2 frames per second to make it impossible to identify this person that they're begging us to identify. And as a last point, I know we're running out of time, but the public face of this pipe bomb investigation, who's recently retired very quietly. Now he's an accountant at KPMG. It's a real scumbag kind of guy, but not smart at all. Scumbag guy. But what was his, what was his job before running DC field office of the FBI. He was the head of the Detroit field office where he oversaw the Whitmer kidnapping plot Mm -hmm. which has been exposed as the biggest entrapment fed operation you can possibly imagine with striking parallels to January 6th. Now think about it, of all the agents in the country Christopher Ray could have plucked out from the middle of nowhere in the United States and given that coveted Washington field office position, he picked the guy who ran the Fed napping Whitmer plot.
1: Yes, of course he did. And we've had Julie Kelly on this show multiple times, and she has made that point too. It's exactly right. The corruption runs so deep in every direction, and it's really, really dangerous. We've got to hit this quick break, but we will be back with much more. So sit tight. First, though, guys, I've been telling you about man crates for some time now. It's because they truly make the best gifts for the special men in your life. Just in time for Valentine's Day, for our listeners, ManCrates is giving you 20% off all orders over $99 when you use promo code LOVE20 at ManCrates.com. ManCrates.com has hundreds of totally unique gifts he'll truly love. Like the Whiskey Appreciation Crate with a personalized decanter, matching tumblers, ice sphere molds, and more. ManCrates.com packs his gift in unforgettable experiences like sealed crates he gets to open with a crowbar or a heart-shaped box of delicious jerky like whiskey maple or root beer habanero. Personalization is free. And every gift comes with a full satisfaction guarantee. Use code LOVE20 at mancrates.com to save 20% off orders over $99. Again, that's love20 at mancrates.com. We're coming right back. And we're back with Darren Beatty. Darren, in our final moments here, I just I, I don't want to have this conversation with you without talking about those who died that day. Um, in particular, Ashley Babbitt, who was shot on site, Roseanne Boylan, um, who was gassed and then beaten uh, by the DC Metro Police. It does seem like the "quote unquote" law enforcement—you know, the people who were supposed to be on our side, keeping us safe—that day, whether it was the FBI, DC Metro Police, Capitol Police, etc. Um, really turned on their fellow Americans and in some cases killed them, murdered them that day. Um, so I'd love for you just to, to speak briefly about them and also the January 6th defendants who are still rotting in prison, in many cases without due process. They're sitting there two years plus uh, pretrial with no recourse whatsoever. And as Julie points out, in many cases, Trump judges Are really sticking it to these J6 defendants. And of course, it's all meant to intimidate us and disperse us, you know, the America First movement, the deplorables, you know, those of us who really believe in this country and the rule of law. So, could you speak to the victims, both those who were killed that day and the January 6th defendants who have not seen justice at all?
2: Absolutely. Well, like I said, the whole thing is a humanitarian disgrace. If it were happening, (laughs) you know, the, the, the sad thing is, if this were happening to the Uyghurs in China, the Republicans would actually care about it. The Republicans care more about the Uyghurs in China and the, you know, freedom protesters in Iran than they care about American citizens who are being thrown in the pit by their own corrupt and illegitimate government. Think about how sad that is. They would rather talk about the Uyghurs in China mm-hmm. than Americans who are rotting in solitary confinement for attending a political rally. You know, it's it really exposes a lot of the you know what what we're up against here um but yeah the conditions are horrible and if they were you know if the conditions were happening in in another country again republicans would be calling for regime change if this was happening in iran they would say oh we need to topple the mullahs well what about our mullahs you know there are so many different stories um you know, Julie Kelly really, really knows the most about this. But I think the most sympathetic case is this guy Thomas Caldwell, who's a really great guy. Um, and uh, you know, he's in his sixties. He's a veteran. It's clear he wasn't nefarious in anything, but the, the government decided to throw the book on it, at him and make him a fall guy and he's just been going through legal trouble. And uh, he's one of the Oath Keepers defendants, even though he wasn't even part of the Oath Keepers. And I just mention him because he's such a good guy, and his wife is amazing, too. And, um, you know, he, I'm sure he isn't the only case, I'm sure there are a lot of sympathetic cases like this, but that's a particularly sad one. And, you know, you could say, well, what about all of the Antifa people. What about all the Black Lives Matter people were doing this, and Bill Barr didn't do a damn thing to go after them. And yet we have the biggest dragnet in United States history, throwing the shock and awe treatment. Literally, that's what they call it—the shock and awe treatment—at these January 6th defendants, which conspicuously do not include Ray Epps and these others who actually did have the. You know, it's it 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 really is such a scandal. And, um, really, there's, you know, it's hard to come up with something optimistic about it. It shows the dire position our country is in. And again, I was saying the the battered wife relationship where, you know, how many of how many of these January sixth defendants, you know, some of them are you know former Marines and stuff. How many of these January six defendants have relatives who are joining in the military? fighting for a country that imprisons their relatives because of their political beliefs again how how long is it sustainable you know how long is it till we wonder well maybe you know it it it, it doesn't make any sense and i, I think people are going to start to ask very difficult questions about what it means to be patriotic in relation to a country in which every single dominant institution is evil and corrupt and clownish to the point of unfathomable ridiculousness.
1: Well, I mean, very well said. And I do believe that we are closing in on that tipping point if we haven't gotten there already. And it's a very dangerous moment for the country. Um, And your, your Uyghur analogy is right on. I mean, we're focused on the Iranian regime or the CCP killing their own people but we've got a regime in place in this country that's killing its own people, you know, for peacefully protesting um, or, yeah, or to or, not, you know, for minor infractions, they're getting the book thrown at them. And that's not what a healthy democratic republic should be or must be.
2: That's it's absolutely true. I, I totally agree. Um, but that's where we are. And so you know, I think the we just need to start from where we are and acknowledge where we are and not engage in pretty lies and um, soothing delusions. Because, you know, I think the the situation is so dire that people are desperate for um, a palliative and, and that, you know, a, a lot of conservative media serve to you know provide that value and there's there's something to be said for that but if you really want to win you have to be connected to reality and um that's the first step toward building a real infrastructure that one day could actually um play for high stakes play to win and that's where yeah, we, need yeah, so, we need to start we need to start by acknowledging the reality, even though it's pretty bleak, again, it's you know, asymmetrical situation and so forth. But um, we still, you know, despite everything, there are a lot of you know very smart and very tough and courageous people in the country who know exactly what's going on, and including a lot of young people. You know, as as aggressively as the regime tries to censor everything, that's the other thing. You know, the the internet as we knew it. Is totally reconfigured. We don't have a, a real internet anymore in the way we did, say, even in 2014. And again, it's funny. It's like people are pointing at, oh, look at you know. Did you know in China, <laughs> you don't have free speech? Did you know you, you know uh, there was a great thing? I have a, a friend of mine on the right that I won't name, but he's done a lot of great stuff. And of course, anyone who does great stuff, you get attacked for it, and you get, you know, you can get deplatformed, you can get banned, and something like that. And he was having a conversation with with another kind of well-meaning but um, maybe simple person, and he was saying, you know, don't you know that, you know, how how bad China is? Do you know that you have a social credit score in China? Do you do you know what your social credit score? And his response was probably a lot higher than my social credit score in the United States is Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's probably a lot higher than so it's like we just need to understand again there's a lot of this kind of residual sense that yeah America is this free country signing on a hill all that that's not the reality anymore we are we are on a fast track to China, but even worse than China, I say the dystopia that the global Amer- globalist American empire is becoming is basically China plus drag queens, because China doesn't have all the drag queen stuff. They they just have the totalitarianism. They just settle for the injury. But in America, we get the injury plus the insult. And the insult is that our tyrants and our overlords are the most ridiculous clownish people imaginable. And they'll shut you down and shut you up and throw you in the pit. Meanwhile, they'll send an army of drag queens to go dance in your kid's school. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And that's the state of the globalist American empire.
1: Unfortunately, that's true. I mean, we've got all of the worst elements of political, economic and cultural Marxism, Darren, unfortunately, and and that's exactly what our enemies, both external and internal, have intended this entire time. Um, and you're exactly right. And I say it on the show all the time because we do heavy stuff and have heavy conversations like this a lot. And it, the, the truth is, we are at this critical moment. It's a very dangerous and dark moment, unfortunately, but there's always hope and light. But living in denial and wishful thinking does us no good.
2: It does no, us I no good. And you know, I'm not even pessimistic about it. I, I think things are going to be fine. We just need to be tough. We need to be realistic. What, and people say, oh, you're demoralizing for you know saying how things actually are. No, I think what's demoralizing is seeing people wallow around in delusions because that's not a path to actually changing the situation. That just temporarily and falsely changes your emotional state. It doesn't set anything up to actually right. win in the future. So to me, being sober, being realistic, is actually invigorating because it means we're connected with reality and we can build something real.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And that is always step one. So we are a little late to the game. I always say, you know, we we're in a war for the future of the country and really Western freedoms. Um, And only one side has been fighting that war. But now I think uh, our side, the battle is joined And it's in large part, Darren, thanks to you. So you're just such a hero for this cause. And you're out there every day fighting and running this incredibly important investigative news site, Revolver News. Everybody can find it at revolver.news. Please go check it out multiple times a day. Just live on that site like I do. They do great investigative work, as I mentioned, but also they're a terrific news aggregator site. You know, the way Drudge used to be until he fell apart. Well, Darren has taken it upon himself to build uh, just an even better site than Drudge ever was. And again, if we want to change the culture and the news environment and get the truth, we need to support people like Darren and Revolver.News make sure you go to those websites and support everything that they are doing. Um, Darren, I want to thank you so much. The book, remind us of the book title again on January 6th.
2: The book is important about the book is it's Sky Horse, the Sky Horse version, because other versions are coming out that just parrot the same CNN slop, the cattle slop. If you want to get the version that the New York Times and CNN are furious about, it's the Sky Horse version with the introduction by Darren Beatty. You can get it at Sky Horse. You can go to Amazon. Just type in Darren Beattie, January 6th report. And it's funny, you look at some of the reviews. I think some of the some of the, uh, (laughs) the woke brigade, you know, some people may have purchased it, which is really funny. Some, you know, uh, liberals probably purchased it saying, oh, I'm going to have this. This is like the (laughs) Mueller report. I'm going to have this. And then they had no idea. And they see my introduction, like, oh my God, what did I just buy? (laughs) I'm going to write a (laughs) negative review because this is, (laughs) this is disinformation. So it's very funny. So yeah, it's, it's probably the best, um, it is the best uh, uh, summary of the whole FedSurrection thesis. It gets into everything. And for the full experience, including the video, you got to go to revolver.news. Go to the January 6 reading list. And if you're just going to see one thing, if you're just going to see one thing, it's the Ray Epps part one and two. Meet Ray Epps part one and two. We have all of the footage of all these people. And it's really impossible to read and watch that video and not understand that something very, very, very dark was going on in January 6th. So that's, that's what I recommend.
1: And we've all been fed a diet of lies about that day nonstop. This is the power of a propaganda press which we're also dealing with. And that's why your work is so important because it's the counter narrative, but it's not a narrative. It's the actual set of facts, data, and truth. So revolver.news, you can go to the January 6th area there and see all of this, find all of this. Is there a link to the January 6th report with your forward there as well, Darren? Uh,
2: no, but there, there will be. So um, there will be. So go there. We'll make sure to put it right on the top.
1: Okay, terrific. And again, this is the Skyhorse Publishing uh, version of the January 6 report with the foreword by Darren Beatty. And again, his last name is B-E-A-T-T-I-E, in case you don't know him, but you should know him, and now you do. Uh, Darren Beattie, revolver.news. You were an absolute hero to the cause and a hero of this republic. And now I feel very honored to call you my friend.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Monica. You're the best.
1: My pleasure, thank you so much. All right, well, that's another very important show in the can. Thank you so much for joining us for this really important conversation. We got so much more coming up this week. Uh, Again, on Wednesday, we're gonna cover the State of the Disunion address tomorrow night. And then on Friday, we're gonna have an extensive conversation with former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, not to be missed. So I really appreciate you guys. Thank you for checking out all of our great sponsors. Have a terrific start to your week, and I will see you right back here on Wednesday.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you.